This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. guys end up writing books as you know that end up going in so many different directions you know about uh, coming over uh, overcoming adversity or um, you know resilience or something of that nature but it tends to be a lot more focused within the military service and I think your story is very unique and um, or maybe it's not unique is not the right word but it's something that's outside of what we typically find within the community right yeah and that was that was definitely a goal I didn't want to I didn't want it to be story time. Look what I did. These are these are my accolades while I was in. Um, so the the military portion is actually a smaller portion um, of the book, and then uh, and even within that, it's a lot of mistakes that were made and you know things that went wrong and and stuff like that. So really trying to just you know be human and be okay with the fact that I made a ton of mistakes. Yeah, that's the I love the message. And uh, I think the episode that I listened to, your brother was also on that that episode. Yeah. And what a moving and powerful one it was at that, because the fact that you two were there to be able to interact and each sharing different perspectives and stuff like that was very helpful. So I I hope to kind of dive into all of that. There's a yeah. lot to really unpack here, but so I want to I want to get it going for sure. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to, you know, all the beginning of when you were six years older, even a little bit before that, like where was it that you grew up and had your childhood? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town called Phelan, California. Um, and it's a high desert. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's a lot of like, uh, meth addicts and, you know, a lot of meth cooking in, in basements and stuff because, it's just out in the middle of nowhere and like you're so secluded uh, with the dirt roads and in the washboard roads that like cops don't want to get out to you. And um, so it's really we just kind of did whatever we wanted. It was like we just had no influence from other people, you know, it was like we ran amok. And um, so, yeah, feeling was it was a different kind of place to grow up for sure. It was not just no supervision, no, you know, so we just ran amok. We did whatever we wanted to do. do you, have you ever heard of Phelan? I've never heard of Phelan. What's that close to? Yeah. What's like, the uh, like his Hesperia Victorville, you okay. know, those areas. Not oh. really. Yeah. So Hesperia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like uh Northeast of LA, probably like 45 minutes. Okay. So okay. on, like if you're going out to uh, Vegas, yeah, then you would drive through it on, you know, on the way to Vegas. 
Oh, so like yeah. really out in the middle of nowhere, but I had yeah. no idea that it was that bad. You know, typically yeah. when you hear about, um, you know, bad areas within LA, Compton automatically comes right. up, you know. Um, here in Atlanta, there are specific places as well, you know, where higher crime rates and everything else. But right, it was just, you know, when you mentioned that and, you know, you talk about your upbringing and everything else, I never would have thought of someplace out in the middle of nowhere in the desert right. is right. where that would have stemmed from. Right. And it's kind of, it's an interesting place and it actually got um, quite a bit worse after. So what happened was the, you know, with Ontario going up in property value there were everyone's like well we could just sell you know this tiny little house in ontario and we can go out to feeling and we could buy like a nice house yeah so all of a sudden you start getting a lot of the gangsters and stuff they were like let's just go out there there's less police like we give less we could you know the the drugs are the same um you know all the criminal activity is 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 popping but we don't have all the law enforcement you know constantly watching what we're doing that's crazy so like makes perfect there was, sense. Yeah, and there was times you, like we were driving out through the, on a desert road, and it was me and my brother, and he'd be looking for like snakes or whatever. We just kind of like doing whatever, and you would just come up to this blacked out trailer, and a guy walked out with a shotgun and he started racking it, and is like, "Turn around now!" And we're like, "Oh, <laughs> you know, you're throwing it in reverse and you're you're punching it out of there because it's a it's a meth lab." So they'll put the meth labs in the middle of the desert and they, they completely black it out so you can't be seen from the aircraft or, you know, you can't be seen from miles away. So they, all night long, they're cooking meth in just blacked out conditions. And if you stumble upon those, like, you turn around and go. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my God. Yeah, I, it's crazy. I think that's, many people don't realize this. Like, yeah, there's crime in the inner cities, but yeah. th this is a big country. There's these places that are so remote. It's like you said, you got roads that are accessible if you want to drive down washboards and I, I grew up in colorado and you know you go out on the plains there's nobody out there there yeah. might not be another person for 50 miles and similar yeah. situation but i've heard yep, about you really get some leeway to do whatever you want to do and and that's and when the crazy thing is like to get to a house from the main road is like two two miles almost minimum of washboard roads with huge ditches and like we know the roads so i could do like 60 miles an hour down that road and be perfectly fine you try to follow me you're crashing your car for sure <laughs> like, yeah so you, you know getting away from cops and things like that we were always running and it's like you can't catch us so cops didn't even try they're like let them go this is we like full-on back in the day moonshining up in tennessee yeah. you know yeah we're like <laughs> we're not dealing with it just let them like it's not even worth it your car's gonna rattle to pieces we're gonna crash and they're just going to keep doing it anyway, so leave it alone. Well, I, wow. I bet they don't have the resources there for, like, helicopters and stuff like that either. No. Because it's, yeah, you know, as little money as probably is in those communities, I'm guessing right. the law enforcement there doesn't, doesn't have it either. Right, right. So that's how we grew up, and it was just, I mean, I, I remember sharing a bed with, like, not a bed, but sharing a, a house with the, a guy, um, and he ended up getting arrested for murder, like, what? Yeah, wow. so it was like, so he didn't have a place to stay, and my mom was like, "Well, he could stay with us for a little bit." I was like, "Okay." So there was so many times, like, like one time we were driving in the car, he's in the passenger seat, and all of a sudden he sees a cop and just jumps out of the car, like it, we're doing like, <laughs> like fifty, oh and he's God. just tumbling into the, and then he takes off running into the desert, 
And then he calls us like, hey, can you come pick me up? Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, well, who does that? And he's like, I'm on third strike, man. Like, I cannot get caught. And then there was times when he'd ask me to go take my dirt bike and pick up his um, his little drop bag because he had, you know, he saw a cop and dropped his drop bag with guns in it. And uh, so he's like, hey, man, can you pick that up for me? And I was like, I mean, dude, I'm like 13. Like, I don't care, I guess. <laughs> uh, oh, my sure. God, man. As yeah, he's calling so, you on his burner phone, you know. Yeah, and then he ended up getting arrested for murder, and he's in jail for life now. But that's just the kind of people you get out there. They're just yeah. You either get out, or you know, you're you're probably not doing too good in the grand scheme of things. This is this is a rough environment for anybody, let alone someone that you know. You and your brother six. He's your younger brother, right? Older brother. Older brother. I couldn't remember yeah. which is which. I was telling Paul, I said, I can't remember which way it was. At first, I thought yeah. you were the eldest. Or, uh, you were the eldest. And then I questioned that because I got to thinking it may be the opposite. So it is. Okay, so you're the youngest. And and for you guys to be out in that type of situation, it wasn't just that. It was the home no. lifestyle that you grew up in as well. Right. So, yeah. So it going back um and i know in the podcast my, my brother kind of remembered it differently but the way i remembered like the shift was a car accident so my mom got in a car accident it was really bad and from there she the doctors just started pumping her full of opioids and that's when that's when i remember the wheels like really falling off and everything changed from that point like once she got addicted to drugs and then she got addicted to alcohol and then it was just home life was in absolute disaster all the time single mother we single might, mother yeah yep. we have to yeah, state my, that yeah yeah my dad left when i was one um and he we i didn't meet him until i was like 15 yeah so yeah she was and that was the kind of the cool thing with having chris on and you know sharing stories because i was like i was like yeah remember that time you told me about the bullet hole in the top of the the roof and he's like you have no idea and I was like, well, what happened? Because I remember sitting in the back of the car and I'm looking out the back window of the, the car and uh, someone's like chasing us in the car. And I was just like, this is weird. I don't know. I'm like six. And I'm sitting in the back looking out the back window and I don't remember like too much happening, but I remember getting back to the house and my brother's like yelling at my mom. And I was like, what's going on? And he goes, come here, come with me. And he's, he's just infuriated. And he comes outside and he goes, look, and there's a bullet hole that split the top of the, the roof of the car. And then there's another bullet hole that went in the trunk of the car. And I was like, what was the deal with that? I was like, I vaguely remember, I, I remember vividly sitting in the back, but I vaguely remember like the details of the story. And he was like, mom ripped off a drug dealer and took off. And so the drug dealer started chasing us and he as he was chasing us in the car, he reached out the window and started shooting rounds off. And one round split the top of the, the ceiling of the, or the roof of the car. And the other one, I guess, hit the emblem of the car and deflected down into the trunk. And he was like, he, he was yelling at my mom because if it wasn't for that emblem, that would have went in my chest. Because it was exactly right where I was facing out of the back. He's like, so he was screaming at her and he was, in, he was furious because... If it wasn't for that emblem, yeah, I would have taken a round right to the chest. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And it didn't penetrate the gas tank or anything going down through there? Nope. Just deflected. Just He said it just deflected right into the trunk, into the bottom, and 
and that was it. I'm not sure the caliber or anything like that. So, you know, maybe it was a 22 or something and didn't have a lot of, you know, power after hitting that emblem and going down. Yeah. What now was this during the time frame? It was after this that she ended up getting addicted then. It, it was, uh, she ended up getting addicted before this. Yeah. Before so, this. She, so this was yeah. a raid. She, so she was getting additional probably opiates. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's how it was. She would burn through all hers and then, um, she would be seeking out a lot of elderly. Um, she was connected to all the elderly in the area and she oh, would just raid them. Yeah. And the elderly, they couldn't afford their, their bills. So they had to sell. Uh, a lot of their medications, a lot of times, a lot of their opioids. So, like, I knew one lady who would go in, be in pain all the time because she needed the money. So she would just always just sell her opioids. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This is. She like ended up really rough. Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And honestly, the biggest part that I remember, and the way it affected me, is just like the constant stress. It was like anxiety to the max all the time. Like I hated school because. I was getting in trouble a lot and I couldn't conform and I couldn't like get along. So I was going to the principal's office like once a day and cause the teacher would be like, you can't keep interrupting me. You can't keep making jokes. And I just couldn't stop myself. So I was getting in trouble at school, but then I'd go home and it's like, as soon as you get off the bus, your, your stomach just sinks because you have no idea what you're walking into. It could be, you know, people shooting at each other. It could be a drunken tirade. Like it literally could be anything. I, I can't imagine growing up in that type of lifestyle, um, you know, and I know that kids do it every day. And so hearing something like this is heartbreaking, you know, that there are kids that every day live in an environment where they don't even know if they're going to make it out alive at six right. years old. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah, I feel terrible for him. And it, it was just it was just an immense amount of stress and it it wears on you. It starts to create like. You know, you, you see that you're you're acting different than kids should be acting. You're you're feeling you're always on edge, you're always fighting. You're just trying to like figure out what to do and how to act because you're just so stressed out all the time. So you knew from a young age that something was wrong, this was not oh, yeah. normal and that it was affecting you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's and then so I and that's kind of where the book comes in is like figuring out how to deal with that. So what ended up happening is I was so ashamed of this like white trash, you know, welfare recipient kid that I was growing up. I was super undereducated. Um, I mean, I failed out of 10th grade and California school systems were garbage as it was. So even I, I, they were passing me and I wasn't even going to school. Like it was just like I was just moving along. So I had my education was so bad. Um, that I started to get really insecure. And so I spent a lot of my life, my adult life trying to make up for that and like prove that I wasn't that guy anymore. You know, so I went and got a, a associate's degree, then a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree. And it's like, um, I started running marathons. I started doing all these things, you know, to just to prove that I wasn't that guy. And it never worked because I was that guy, you know, it's like, I still grew up that way. So you can't, you can't just be somebody else. Like I can't, yeah, I still have temper problems. I, I still like run people off the road and have road rage. I, I, I burn down opportunities left and right and I can't stop. 
So it's like no matter how how many achievements that normal people did that I tried to emulate, I was I was still that guy. And it wasn't until the book and writing things down and like facing my past that that's when things started to change and I was able to start, you know, controlling like who I was and how I was acting. It's so interesting because it happens a lot with guys that well, not just everybody that when they start writing and journaling, how cathartic that that can be. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a good tool for that. My, my father was a drug addict, alcoholic, you know, violent person, stuff like that. And there's Mm -hmm. certain things like you grow up and some people just don't get it. You're like, I'm, I'm that guy. Like I was, am the way I was raised. It's interesting to hear you say that. And then the journaling, how much that's helped. What about that process of like writing all these things down? Do you think it was, it helped you sort of crack that nut and start Um, to make a real positive change? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I mean, that, that question is why the book exists. Like that is the whole reason for it. Um, going back and realizing, so like if you, if you think about your past, like you, you probably like me where you think about it and, and it's just like these, like, it's like a, a whole brush of negativity mm-hmm. was painted over the entire thing. Right. And so we, we compartmentalize almost all those negative things into like this side place. And we just, we just ignore it. And it's like, we spent so much time trying to forget it. And we just pretend like everything in that box is so negative. And what really changed everything was when I started going back and journaling, I'm like, wait a minute, holy cow, there's so many positive things that came of all that trauma that that is what started to change my perception about who I was. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, my entire childhood was always painted with red and negative and horrible things, but there's so much, you know, blue and positive and, you know, great things in there as well. And so the journaling allowed me to like, pull those apart and start analyzing the positive things. And I started to realize like almost everything that's happened good in my life was because of those traumas. Mm. So it's like you had to take it back out. You can't just like ignore it and pretend like it didn't exist and then start over. Sure. You know, you got to break it back down and be like, okay, okay. I can't be, I can't be mad at this because it also gave me this. And then the perspectives start changing And all of a sudden you're just like, at some point in the writing process, I hit a point where I was like, I'm better. I'm better than if I would have never gone through any of this. This is, this is great. This is good. Yeah. And I started being really proud of my past and then all that changed everything. I was like, this is amazing. Like I'm, I'm so grateful for all those things because look at, look at all these changes that happened to me that wouldn't happen. It's an amazing perspective because most people would probably take more of the victim route. And I think in my own personal case, um, I didn't have any, you know, rough childhood in that sense. It just wasn't a, a great family environment all the time. The father not being there when he does come home, he's angry, um, takes it out on the kids. We do one wrong thing and then that's not a good scenario. And in that type of environment, there were certain standards that I realized my father um, held over me and it was when I met a life coach that that person actually said, you know, you've got, you've got to 
you got to deal with this. This is something that you've mm. got to come to grips with. And I didn't realize how much that that had a control over my life for the last 20, 30 years, you know, prior to that. And so she asked me to journal. And at some point she actually asked me to not necessarily in the journal, but somewhere write or speak to him. Cause he's no longer with us. He's gone. Um, he's deceased is to, is to basically tell him why this is affecting you and that you're, you're not going to take it anymore. You're not going to let this control you any longer. And very cool. it was a very cathartic, I can tell you for me, it changed my life from that point forward. Um, but I never still look back at that time period of my childhood and try to think of something positive from it. Does that make sense? It, that, Absolutely. That, to me, that's really strong that you're yeah. able to do that. I well, still I compartmentalize think, a lot of that stuff. And it's you know? exactly, that's what's happened is it, yeah. you, it's, it sounds like, which I didn't do the way you did it. And honestly, I could really benefit from that because even though I, you know, unboxed all those things and I found the positives and I'm really proud of it now, yeah. there's not forgiveness. Yes. And that's the part that looks, it sounds like you got that down. I'm going to, I'm taking what you said. I'm going to think about it because I really need to do that. Yeah. Like I don't have forgiveness for my mother, you know? And it's like, even though I've come so far with that time in my life, I, I never hit a point where I was like, you know, I understand and, and I forgive you. And I, I, I know that you are doing your best. I just, I, to me, that part's still compartmentalized and that one's still put away for sure. I think, I, you know, I can't be the person to tell you that it'll help you, but I can certainly tell you from, from my own life, it was a life changing thing. And it was something, like I said, even up to that point, I didn't realize it, but the more we started talking about how much of a control my father had over me and you know because when i was growing up there were things said like you'll never amount to anything you know those types of things that you know so i always was dr driven to the point to where i was leaving so many things behind in my life mm. and so i needed to let that go and this was the way that i did it and so a little bit different than what we're talking about here but i think that there's i guess a lot to be said about journaling and absolutely yeah and really pouring your emotions out some way um well, that's yep. that's why stories like yours are so important too is because you're you're obviously the extreme example of what can go wrong in your childhood but you know in your case it was less severe but there's still a lesson there for you i mean i think everybody's hanging on to something from childhood so like i'm looking forward to absolutely. reading your book because you don't have to have been raised in such a, a severe environment like you to be able to get something out of it and absolutely. sometimes that can contextualize it i'm curious like you said you found a lot of positive things from journaling and going back through your childhood like what are some of the things that you what are some of the positive aspects of that or what are some of the strengths you feel like you identified by doing that that's a great question. So one of the main things I was like, I always see like two, two like opposite things when I go after something. Um, I do really well consistently and I burn the opportunity to the ground consistently. And it was this pattern that I just kept doing. It's like no matter what I did, I was going to crush it and then I was going to ruin it. I was going to crush it and then I was going to ruin it. Um, one story is I was, I wanted to be a firefighter. So 
I signed up for EMT school and I'm doing all the things in college and I'm doing all the stuff and I'm like, um, uh, I'm, I'm doing really good in EMT school. So then this guy is like the guy that I ride with, he's starting to, he comes up to me. He's like, Hey man, this guy's like, like talking shit to me in class. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, ah, you're probably just looking too much into it. And then, so I get up to go throw my gum away and I look at him and he's mean mugging me. And I was like, you got a problem, dude. And he's like, he's like, yeah, we'll talk about it at lunch. And I was like, you got it. And then, so at lunch he gets in my face and I headbutt him right in the face, boom, and break his nose. Well, now I'm kicked out of school. So it's like, I'm crushing it. And then it's like, no matter what, I'm, I'm, I'm just destroying it. And it's like, I can't consistently make anything worse. Um, so that was something I was like, I just assumed that my childhood was responsible for the bad mm-hmm. and that my new path and my focus and my energy is responsible for the good. Right. So that every time I would ruin my opportunities, I would just blame my past. And I'm like, damn it. If I, if I would only not grown up like that, I would, I would not be screwing this up. Yeah. And then as I started journaling, I started to realize like, no, the reason I do well was because I learned how to be independent. I learned how to focus. I learned that I have no one to blame but myself. Like I am responsible for my path and nobody else is. Also, I learned how to be angry and disgruntled and I don't, I'm rough around the edges because I was never like taught how to behave properly. So I just started to realize that those things became, they came hand in hand and they just worked together. And it was like, that became a pattern as I was looking through the past. It was like almost every time I would find the positive, I could find just as much negative with it and vice versa. So that's like one example. Two parallels there, like two magnets that are like, you know, pulling resistance instance. How do you like get them to work together is what it sounds like, you know, because right. and I think a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast find their lives in very similar situations. I can't say that I was really destructive, but the fact that you're like driven, mm-hmm. I can relate to. And then the other side of it, I can certainly see how could be relatively easy in your situation to want to then tear everything down or you don't even realize it subconsciously yeah everything starts taking over and it's like no no this is not good no 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 you know stop it right you got it yeah you know but then the problem is i started like blaming myself and like beating myself up for every time i'd mess it up instead of giving myself some leeway and saying hey you went through a lot you're broken and that you know, honestly, that is a huge thing right there. And it's like looking in the mirror and be like, you're broken and it's okay. Just like vets that have PTSD. Yeah. You're broken. It's okay. Like you're not discarded trash because you have problems. And that was a huge turning point for me was like, I had to accept the fact that I was a broken person so I could be proud of the things that I do right. And then not just destroy myself every time I do something wrong. And that's when things started like moving along. Cause it's like, okay, I did this good. Sweet. I'm proud of myself. Good job. Let's keep, let's keep going. Oh, I messed up. It's all right. It's all right. Yeah. I'm broken. I'm a broken person. I have PTSD. I have PTSD from, you know, the childhood and the, you know, war kind of made it a little bit worse. And, mm-hmm. but so 
once I stopped beating myself up, it was like I, I was able to take, you know, two steps forward and only half step back instead of two steps forward and three steps back, always feeling like I'm ruining my life and never making progress. You gave yourself permission and forgiveness. Yes, exactly. That's a great, great point. It's yeah. exactly what happened. I and, didn't know I was doing it, but yeah. it had to be done. Yeah. Well, and those are things that you lacked in a structure from, you know, having an adult there to provide those things to you. You know, typically as a parent, you know, you, you, you tell your child, hey, you made a mistake. You know, mm -hmm. mistakes are going to be made in life and give a lesson there. Or, you know, hey, yes, it's okay to go ahead and do this, you know, and those types of things. Or it's okay to even stumble. We all do that on occasion. You right. missed out on all those opportunities. Instead, it was, like you said, you had either a, a life that, like in school or something where you're excelling and doing really well, or it's the home life, which was the polar opposite of the happy setting, or at least something that's a little bit more structured to something that's just out of control. And right. it made you feel really, you know, sad and, and a pit in your stomach and everything else when you got off that bus. Um, I'm just curious, like when, when you started journaling and everything and, um, and you started looking back in your life and everything that went on, um, you mentioned about the positives out of it and stuff, but how, how much was, you know, having your brother around or even friends and fellow peers that may have been going through some of the same struggles, was there a sense of like, um, you know, a stronger bond because of that, because you had some common ground that you guys could did you talk with your peers and your friends that were in that same space? Um, I, I don't really recall like ever seeking, I didn't ever talked about it to be honest. Like I never told anybody about my past ever, ever not like not once. So no kids they, knew that you, you didn't have like, you know, I remember you didn't have um, t you telling the story about you didn't have much food to eat, you know, clothes right. to wear. Right. You know, you well, borrow clothes, if I remember correctly. Right. Know? Well, it, I'm, when I was a kid, I definitely didn't talk about it. I lied. I lied constantly. I was a habitual liar. I would make up stories. It, when I went to school, it was like my time to pretend to be somebody else. And I would tell lies. I'll never forget getting caught by my classmates because they were like, they're all talking about their snowboarding trip. And I was so jealous and I was just like, oh yeah, I went snowboarding and they're just like, oh yeah, where'd you go? <laughs> like, we know you're poor, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was, they were like, where'd you go? And I was like, oh, I went to that one place and had the jumps and they all just started laughing and, you know, and I was like, dang it. <laughs> I was like, that, that didn't get bought for a second no. and it was so embarrassing, but that's what I did. I just lied constantly. Like, um, and it wasn't until... All, all through growing up, like I never talked about where I was from. Like it wasn't it wasn't until I started writing the book that I would even tell people about my past. So you and had your brother, but you had no other friends that you could then. Wow. Okay. No. So that's that's even more challenging. Yeah, it's like I didn't I didn't feel comfortable with anyone knowing like what was going on. So nobody did. Nobody came over to our house ever. Um, my brother actually ended up just he called his friend's mom mom. And just basically moved in with his friends at a really young age. And, you know, for us, I would, if I couldn't stay at another friend's house, then uh, no one was ever coming to my house. Like, I never, 
I never talked about it to anybody. Mm. And you guys, you you had to kind of def, you know fend for yourself when it came to the food and you know your environment all the way up until what sixteen, seventeen was it or it was uh it was about fifteen when I realized that I couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I was like I'm I got to get out of this. So um, that's when I contacted my dad, even though I I never met him, and I was like. Well, he's got to be better than this. Like anyone's got to be better than this. So I was like, I'll take a Hail Mary pass. I'll contact him and I'm going to go out there. Now that was a legal age in California for you to be able to switch parent. No, no, no. So that was the thing. And that's what we talked about on that, that episode that you listened to was like, that was a whole ordeal to get out there without just having the cops bring me back. Cause I would run away from home constantly. And the cops would just always just bring me back, bring me back. They'd go get me and bring me back. Because I had family members that were, were good people, great people, and they were willing to take me in. But my mom wouldn't release custody. Oh, okay. So she saw us as a check, and she's not going to lose that that income check. So she wasn't going to sign off on that. So finally I was like, I called uh, my dad, and I was like, what do I got to do? And he's like, you need to... He's like, okay, let's let's call the cops in Fredonia and ask them so we know exactly what to do. So we call the cops and they're like, you need a note that says exactly this. Basically just giving up custody and she needs to sign it and date it. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's never going to do that. But I was like, all right. So I filled out the note and I like initially I thought it was being slick. So I cut out the signature spot. And then I put like a school uh, thing on there, like a, a permission slip. Right. And I was like, hey, can you sign this permission slip for me? And instantly she just like flips it over. And she's like, what is this? And then she starts reading it. And I was like, oh, crap. And she start, and she just loses. She's like, I'll never sign this. Like, are you kidding me? And starts cussing me out and stuff. And I was like, well, plan B. So I just started poking the bear. And I was like, I was like, you're a horrible mom. I was like, I'm tired of this. I can't live with you anymore. I was like, this is this, like everything you do is just about you and your drugs. And she just started losing her mind. So I'm getting her more and more hyped up. She's starting to like throw shoes at me and stuff and like throw things at me. And I was like, nope, I'm not stopping this. And finally she goes, you know what? Fine. That's that note's not going to do anything for you. I'll sign it. And so she signs it and then throws it back at me. And she's like, now get away from me. And I was like, you got it. This is all at once. Like, in one night or did it take you like a long period of time or no this was all in the span of like 30 minutes like okay. i just I, I i made her just lose her mind i was just like i wouldn't stop because usually i'm just like you're not worth dealing with so you just leave but i was like nope poking the bear that like, plan could have totally backfired on oh you. yeah oh <laughs> yeah it a, it's a horrible like hail mary pass it but. could have been yeah it could have been one of these situations like you thought your life was living hell now sean wait till, you know and just uh, right. totally you know wow right well and then from there it's like well i knew i have limited i can't she can't know that i'm actually planning on leaving because then she'll rip up the note you know she'll stop me like she she uses she's so manipulative she would always use the police like to her advantage Mm. like the cops are so tired of hearing from her they all knew they all knew her name like oh your mom's jeanette and i'm like yeah like oh sucks i'm sorry dude (laughs) it's it's like everyone knew jeanette they everyone knew her name so it's like the minute she would call, they'd be like, oh, God. Okay, what do you need us to do? Because we could not get 50 million phone calls for the rest of the night. 
because that's how she would get you. Like, yeah, your phone's going to blow up until you answer, you know. So anyway, so I started hiding my stuff in the closet like little by little so she wouldn't know. So I left my room like a mess, like it's kind of normal. But then I take all my important stuff and I slowly over the next course of like three days, I'd be packing and then hiding in the closet, packing, hiding in the closet. I called my dad. Um, he got me set up with a ticket, but it was a few days out. So I was like, I got to be really smart about this. I called my cousin. I was like, I need a place to hide. Like once it's time to go to the airport, she's like, I got it. You can stay with me. And it was go time. I was like, all right, time to go. My cousin picked me up in the middle of the night when she was sleeping and I took off. Well, her house got burned. <laughs> so I was like, there, she calls me and I'm there by myself. I don't have a car, obviously. And she's like, I'm on my way home right now. I'm doing like 90. Your mom knows you're there. You need to just hopefully I get there first or just run. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Man. So so I'm waiting for her to just come barreling down the driveway with the police. And I'm just like, my heart is pounding. And I have all my bags in my hands and I'm just waiting. And I hear a car barreling down the road, and I was like, this is it. Game over. And it's my cousin. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yes. She beat her. And so my cousin comes barreling in. She's like, get in the car. <laughs> so I throw my stuff in the back of the truck, and she takes off. And she's like, we'll go to Hesperia. I just rented a place in Hesperia. She's like, nobody knows where that one's at. Like, it's our, her new her new apartment. She's like, you can stay with me there. You should be good there until we can get you out of here. And how was how was your cousin? Uh, my cousin was probably like 22, 23 okay. at the time. Okay. So, yeah, she's much older than me. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so she was my godson. You know, she helped me get out. And then, um, you know, so I get on the plane. Luckily, I made it out. And then I get to New York, and my dad picks me up and just instantly is, like, shaking his head. He's like, no, cops already been called. It's a wrap. And I was like, dang it. I was like, all right, it's over. So we went to the police station and then the cop, he was, I could hear her yelling through the the phone. She's just like screaming his ear off. And, uh, and I was like, all right, I guess it's time to go home. He's like, you got to go home, man. He's like, you're 15. She has custody of you. He's like, what are you doing? Why would you get on a plane and fly out here? And he was like, kind of getting mad at me. And I was like, what about the note? And he's like, what do you mean? What note? And I handed him the note, and I was like, you guys told me if she signed this note that said this, that I'd be okay. And he looks at it, and he was like, ma'am, did you sign this note giving away custody? And I could hear her on the phone, like, yeah, I signed that thing. No, no, I don't give it. It don't mean anything. And he's just, and he just like, all right, thank you. Bloop. Hangs up the phone on her, and then he's like, have a good life, kid. And handed me my note, and I was like, yes. <laughs> Got the golden ticket. I was free. <laughs> so that was a game changer for me. Oh my God! So when she, when you wrote this note, you hand wrote it. So she mm -hmm. probably just thought that it wasn't official because it's handwritten right. by a kid, you know, right. fifteen exactly. years old. Yeah. Yep. Little did she know you had all this legal advice prior to yeah. that. Holy yep. cow! That cop told me exactly what to write, and I copied his what he said verbatim to make sure that it was that nothing could go wrong. So I was like, I made him tell me, like, say it again. Okay. And then I just went through each word. And I was like, all right, now I got to do is get her to sign it. Now, this is a so, cop in California that said have a good life, right? No, this is a cop in New York. So I was going to ask you, because um, I do remember hearing that part of the story, you know, about with your dad and the cop and everything. So 
New York laws didn't change the verbiage or make it so that that wouldn't hold up even, you know, cause it's a different state. Right. And honestly, I don't, I don't even know if, if that guy just was so mad at her for being obnoxious yeah. that he just kind of helped me out. But yeah, he said that, you know, he's like, well, it's good enough for me. And honestly, I ended up becoming law enforcement. I was a, a cop for three and a half years. Like, I can't imagine that working. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but you know, maybe he's just like, you know what? I'm tired of this lady. He's like, if I could, he, at least I could, he probably thought he could get away with it for now. Right. To where he couldn't like, he knew he couldn't be violating the law at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then, but it was enough to, to, she just backed off after that. Like a cop telling her, sorry, too bad was enough and that was it i was good well think about what could she have done honestly i mean because um she could have done a lot don't get me wrong but i'm saying in her position right you're going to start exposing a whole lot of stuff that perhaps you don't want to do to law enforcement to lawyers and attorneys and it's going to cost money and it's going to cost money exactly right so across the country and that probably that cop probably do the same thing like yeah. All right, she confirmed that this is her signature, so all I have to do is sit on a stand and say, she said she signed it, yeah. and then it's in somebody else's hand, and he's not accountable. We'll so, leave the courts to decide I, at that point. I, so exactly. that's, kind of, that's, that's probably what he was Why doing. Why that work? Uh, that's, that's a crazy story, man. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a crazy story. <laughs> I got out and of it, it with a note, man. With a note, with a, sign, a note that I wrote. <laughs> that's a 15-year-old <laughs> like kid. Like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. I probably just had the right cop sitting there and he was just, maybe he'd totally. gone through some stuff, you know? And, yeah. you know, and he was like, you know what? No one helped me. I'm going to help this kid. And I love that dude. If I ever saw him again right now, I'd hug him. Yeah. You need like, to go dude. find that guy. No know. Lie, you know, and maybe know. you talk to the police officers out there in California in your County. And they said, Oh man, I feel sorry for this kid. You know, you got to help yeah. this kid out. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Seriously. Cause I tell you what, every single one of those cops knew my mom. Yeah, that is crazy. So you became a cop there in New York. No, so I ended up um, joining. So I went military, and then um, once I got out of the military, then I went law enforcement. Okay, so tell me how it is that you ended up going into special forces. And and before we get there, where was your brother in all of this? So where did he stand? Because you left him behind, even though he's mm-hmm. older. He's still living with your mother? Yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. So he, he, he honestly, he moved out like really young. He was like, he went and stayed with friends. First friends. Okay. Almost, so he yeah, stayed there. Moved. I didn't know if he went back or if she brought him back just like she, you know, was trying to get you to stay. Yeah. No, he felt, he felt tied to my grandparents. So mm. he never left California. Okay. So uh, he stayed the whole time in California. Okay. So you end up yeah. going into the military. What, what did he end up going into? What route did he end up going into? Uh, he just stayed, he did the family business and stayed a mechanic. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So our, my grandpa was owned a forklift repair company for like 52 years. Yeah. So my, my brother's a mechanic since he was like 14. Yeah. You know, so he just kept doing that and you know, he hates it, but he's good at it. So he just keeps, keeps doing it. What was the reason why you decided to go into the military? Oh, that's a good question. So that fight I told you about. Yeah. When I, I had not, yeah, but. the next day I walked into the recruiter's office and I walked in and he was like, he's like, what, what do you want? And I was like, I want to be a ranger. And he's like, I was like, those guys are cool. And he's like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. He's like, 
all right, come back tomorrow. <laughs> and awesome. I didn't know I didn't know anyone in the military. I like, I didn't know anybody. I had no advice on anything. All I knew was that rangers were cool and I wanted to be a ranger. So I walked in and I was like I was like ranger please and he was like come back tomorrow. And so it's funny cuz like I took I took the least cool guy path like on the planet. <laughs> like I listen to your podcast and some of these guys like are so badass and they're like, so cool. They're like, yeah. So I went Ranger and then uh, you know I got a couple deployments and I went Special Forces and right and then, then Delta, I went Delta and, and, right exactly. You know and then it's like gosh, dang dang it, dude. Like, and, yep. <laughs> it's insane. Like oh yeah, the CAA is trying to hit me up, but I don't want to do it. Anymore. It's like I, I I went like the least of that. So I walk in the recruiters like I want to be a Ranger. He's like, all right, come back tomorrow. So I come back tomorrow, and he's like, good news and bad news. I was like, as long as the good news is a ranger contract. And he's like, e kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, what is it? And he's like, uh, I got you option 40. It's a air, You got airborne ranger. He's like, but. But. Caveat. He's like, they're not really taking infantry right now. They, they're fl- Which he's a liar. He's such a liar. <laughs> um, so, yep. yeah. He was like, they're not taking infantry right now. Um, so we got you a cook contract and I was like, say what? Come again? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Like you guys, you guys have that in the military? Like a cook? Yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> okay. Well, I was like, what does that even mean? I was like, but I'll be a ranger. And he's like, yeah, dude, you'll definitely be a ranger. He's like, you're definitely going to be a ranger. <laughs> I was like, that's all I care about. <laughs> I was like, I was like, so how long do I got to be a, a cook for before I can go to infantry? I was like, cause that's what I want to do. And he's like, oh dude. Two months. He's like, no. You just, he's like, go to go to um, all your training. He's like, get into Ranger Regiment, and then they'll let you switch over like that. Bing, bada, bing, bada, boom. No problem. And I was like, I could do anything for two months. I was like, I'll clean a pooper for two months if you know if it gets me into to Ranger Regiment. And I was right. like, that place seems cool. So, uh, so I was like, all right. And he's like, hook, line, and sinker, dude. He was like, got him. <laughs> and so I signed that contract and. Um, I'll never forget. So I'm going through basic and I was like, everything's normal and basic, right? Cause you're soldiers, you're wearing right. soldier stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm not with a bunch of infantry guys, but I was like going to basic and then I go to AIT and I was like, what the hell is that? And there's like a formation of people in white uniforms, like marching towards me. I was like, who, who are those guys? And what the hell are they wearing? And like, those are cooks, dude. <laughs> and I was one of the guys told me, he's like, those are cooks, bro. He's like, that's what you're going to be wearing. And I was like, oh, my God, I made a mistake. <laughs> and as soon as I saw I was like, oh, my God, I was so mad. And then the, the part that really ticked me off is I go to basic and I scored. My PT test was the second highest in in uh, my whole company. I don't know, it was company or whatever. Battalion, I, I don't know yeah. So my PT source was really high. I was doing pretty good. And so my drill sergeant... Um, hits me on the PA and he's like, Rogers, come down here. And I was like, oh crap, I'm in trouble. And so I go down and he's like, hey man, do you want to go Ranger? And I was like, wait a minute. What do you mean do I want to go Ranger? I was like, well, you would have offered me that anyway? And he's like, yeah, dude, your PT score is like really high. He's like, yeah. And I was like, son of a... Mm. <laughs> I was like, I already got Ranger, but I got it with a cook. And I was like, I got to wear these damn cook whites until they let me switch. And he's like, oh, no, that was a mistake, dude. He's like, you shouldn't have done that. 
And so, <laughs> that's uh, not what you want to hear at that moment. No, I was so mad. And so he we talked really, about those two parallels that you had in your life of you know good times. Then you go and destruct yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it coming already. Oh, and so he he was a cool guy, and he really tried to help me out. Um, and so he's like, I'm going to try to get you switched to infantry. I'll see what I could do. And I oh. was like, Thank you. Uh, he couldn't, so that sucked. Um, but yeah, so I went. Um, so. Then Ranger comes along, and this mongoloid of a human being after airborne school just comes trucking down the hill, and they're like, "They're like, are oh, you guys? You signed up for RASP, dumbass! Like, good luck." And I was like, "Who the hell is that guy? Like, running? <laughs> like, we're all carrying all our bags and stuff." And I was like, "Where's the truck? You know, like everything I own is in these duffel bags." And he's just doof doof doof, and I was like, "That guy is like, he's like." He's probably like 6'4", 220 pounds, and he's just the the most yoked human being I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, I'm scared. <laughs> and he gets to us, and he's like, grab your shit and follow me. And I was like, where's the truck? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have three bags, so I don't I don't want to follow you. <laughs> and, he, and so we all pick up our stuff, and he just takes off running, like at a dead sprint back to the Ranger barracks. And I was like, I was like, this guy's a psychopath. And uh, I was like, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> I, the guy next to me was holding his ruck over his head for so long. He started puking on himself. Oh my God. I was God. like, I didn't even know you could vomit from standing still. Like <laughs> 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 there was no cardio. It was just his bag. And he's like, <laughs> 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 so, so you end up going to, uh, through rasp. How was it getting, uh, to regiment as a cook? I didn't, so I didn't get through RASP. Oh. So, yeah. So Dick Couch ends up coming to write his his book on that class that I was in. And I remember the guys that recycle, they were like, dude, Dick Couch is coming. I was like, who the hell is that? Like, he's an author, dude. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, can he not? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you already have one of the hardest selections on the planet. And, like, you're going to add an author there? Like, you know it's going to get exponentially worse. Mm, yeah. So, anyway... We're, we're on a ruck run, and you have to stay arm's length of the guy in front of you. And I'm, I'm doing good. I feel good. I'm, I'm moving good. I feel really good. And, but I'm a new private, so I made some really dumb mistakes, and I wore my good broken-in boots for the swim test. So now I'm pulling brand-new boots out of the box and, like, lacing them up for the ruck run. And I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I think there's a mistake. And... So I'm arm's length, the guy in front of me and this ranger cadre, I could feel like his breath on the side of my face. And I look over at him and he's just like, look in front of him. And so I look in front of the guy in front of me and there's this huge gap. The guy in front of me had been falling out for like a couple minutes and he just screams, he's like, close the gap. So I take off running as fast as I can and my, um, my rucksack starts swaying cause it's not set up properly. My boots are too loose and I just roll my ankle and start sliding down the asphalt. Um, so I finished the ruck, we get back to the barracks and like go change and I can't get my boot off. So I had to undo the laces, can't get it off. I had to take my laces out of the boot to get it off my foot cause it's oh, swollen up so bad geez. and it turned black all the way to my toes. And so I just hobbled down and the, the instructor looks at me and he goes, what are you? Oh, he goes, yeah, you're done. <laughs> and, uh. I was nice, like, nice gentle letdown. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've 
got something to tell you. Some rage diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just he just kind of he's just like, oh yeah, you're done, man. He's like, all right, go pack your stuff. And I was like, <laughs> but no, this is the one thing going for me that right. was going to be positive in this whole contract that I signed up for. Like, this was it. Yeah, that was the only thing I wanted was to go Ranger. Like he, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. Now I was going to go be a regular army cook. Oh yeah. yeah. And I, didn't, <laughs> and that's one thing I didn't know about in the military is that like, there's this, there's a, you know, a, what is a, when you're a lifestyle or a, when you know things about the community. Yeah. A culture. Sorry. Thank you. Oh. There's a, the, the culture of, the military i didn't know anything about it so like the i didn't realize that the culture of signing up as a cook was that you were afraid of combat and like you just wanted to be avoid combat and get paid and either had your school paid for or do something really easy so all of a sudden people are just treating me like like oh you're a cook and everyone's looking down on me like i'm not i'm not <laughs> I'm not like suited to handle this kind of like treatment. Like I'm so insecure as it is. Mm -hmm. And all I wanted to do was something that was high speed to prove to everyone else that I had what it took. And here I am at the bottom of the cultural barrel when it comes to, you know, high speed stuff, you know, no offense to anyone that's a cook that, but if you chose to do it, then it's not, it's not low drag to you. You know, that's what you chose to do. But I wanted to prove myself, and here I am as a cook, and it was devastating. Yeah, I could totally see that. And yeah. so what happened next is that when you decided to go down and find some in-service recruiter and talk about going into uh, SF or something, or a recruiter, so, SF recruiter? So basically we had a, a deployment um, coming up, and I was like, I cannot deploy to a combat zone as a cook. I will not do it. Mm. So I made a really uh, – Hail Mary pass move and I was like well there's one spot that just opened up as the personal security detachment for the sergeant major and I was like at least that'll get me out of the wire so but they don't take cooks as personal security detachment like obviously <laughs> you know what I mean so, yeah <laughs> why not why not criteria like like sergeant major I'm making some eggs uh, <laughs> But I was like, you know what? I have to try. I have to try. I have to get that spot. Yeah. Because those guys had it made, dude. Like, you're, like the Sergeant Major's at least going around visiting his guys. Like, I'll be out of the wire. So my first sergeant and Sergeant Major come through the chow hall line, and I'm serving up breakfast. And I was like, this is my shot. And with in front of my first sergeant, I told the Sergeant Major, I was like, and I was a, a private at the time. I said, hey, Sergeant Major, I heard you're looking for a new PSD. And he goes, and he looks at me and he's like, yeah, but, you know, we don't take cooks. And I, and my first sergeant, I could feel him, his, <laughs> him beaming through my face. He don't goes, you better shut your mouth, dude. Like, I cannot believe you're talking to my boss right now, oh. you stupid private. And I told the Sergeant Major, I was like, I was like, Sergeant Major, I'll outperform physically. I'll outshoot anyone that you have up for that position. I was like, that should be mine. I was like, if you want someone that could perform to have your back in Afghanistan, I'm your guy. And he, he like, looked at him, what the hell? And then he looked at my first sergeant, and my first sergeant shaking his head, like, thinking all the ways he's going to kill me. <laughs> no yep. doubt, of yeah. course. Oh, he was pissed. <laughs> he was so pissed. And so he, like, paused for a second. He goes, interesting. 
you're my PSD. And I was like, what? <laughs> just yeah! like that. <laughs> I'm out of the defect. I was like ready to take off the to say, whites and start running out. Ripping I stuff off. Naked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm out here. See you, losers. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was so excited. But so obviously my first sergeant's like livid. He's so mad. So he's not going to let me go. So nothing changes. I'm yeah. like, I'm like waiting every day. I'm like, when do I get to turn in my whites? And nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. And I was like, um, we go on a field rotation and the, my E seven, who's friends with that first sergeant comes up to me and goes, Hey, you're not going to be cooking on this trip. And I was like, yeah, cause I'm PSD. And she's like, <laughs> yeah. and she's like, no, you're not doing that either. She's like, you're going to dig a foxhole for a week. And I was like, wait, what? And she's like, there's your, your hole is right there. It's yet to be dug. Start digging. And she's like, and when you think it's done, make it better. And then I'll come back and check on you. Damn, that's all. I school. dug and slept in that hole for a week. The whole week field rotation, I just spent in a hole doing nothing but digging the hole, making a little grenade port, like making it deeper. Like it was getting to the point where it's like, dude, this is too deep. This is a this is a grave. <laughs> and every morning the first sergeant would walk up drinking his coffee, looking at my hole and be like, make it better. And I was like, I messed up. Oh, <laughs> God, and you so, messed up uh, big time. Oh, he, they hated me. And so sure enough, we get back and I was like, I'm not done. Did you ever see the Sergeant Major ever come to get chow or anything, even in the hole? Never. You never got a chance to go, hey, hey, it's me nope. in the hole. Nope. They made sure my hole was not anywhere near <laughs> where the Sergeant Major was going to be. Yeah, it was course. like in the woods, like to the back. Like there was no reason to be over there. That was not a security <laughs> position. That was just a up. place to put a private that doesn't know how to shut his mouth. <laughs> and so I literally I had contact with no one that entire time. It was just me and me and my hole. And uh, so finally I was like, we get back to Garrison and I'm back in the um, in the chow hall line and I'm serving breakfast. Well, guess what? Here comes Sergeant Major and my first sergeant. Oh, yeah. And the first sergeant's <laughs> got a little smirk on his face and he's like, he ain't going to say shit now. Yeah. I was like, we got him. And he walks up. I was like, Sergeant Major, I thought you wanted me as your PSD. <laughs> <laughs> and the Sergeant Major looks at my first Sergeant and goes, yeah, he's right. What happened with that? Why is he still in the cook? Why is he still cooking? He goes, get him over as PSD now. And he like he like got in my first Sergeant's a little bit. Like he gave him attitude. And I was like, got him. Yeah. Yeah. And then that <laughs> afternoon, they were like, report to the sergeant major that's your that's your job now as psd and i was like oh thank you jesus holy smokes did you ever tell him that story god no oh yeah yeah i i was i was so afraid honestly that they were going to realize that they they can't like pull a cook and put them because that for my first sergeant kept trying to fight it yeah you know i was over there for like probably like months before he finally accepted that i wasn't leaving so i just kept my mouth shut and just worked my ass off at whatever he wanted to try and like secure that spot. Wow. And it, it ended up being great. Like I love that deployment. So on the deployment, um, my Sergeant Major knew that I wanted to go either back to Ranger Regiment Selection or RASP or go to SFAS. So he's like, I fully support you working out twice a day. And he's like, and whatever you got to do, because and he also knew that I wanted to see some action. So we had, we were on Fob Shank. So we had a, um, 
one of the major um, uh, surgical with the field surgical teams on our fob. Mm-hmm. So every time that bird came in, he would let me take his car and just go help out with the the wounded. Because I was like, I have to see action. I don't care what it is. I'm getting in there. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the day I decided I was going to be a Green Beret was the bird came in and they just started pulling off um, Green Berets and they were riddled with holes. And I'll never forget them, you know, pumping their chest and I could see like multiple exit wounds just flowing with blood. And uh, so they're pulling these Green Berets in and I'm like helping any way I can. And I'm looking at one of them and they got them both sit like up in uh, in the gurneys together in the, the surgeon's area but because of this i was a sergeant major driver no one told me i couldn't go anywhere so i would go anywhere i wanted so i would follow them literally from the time they got the bird till you know they left the um post and so i went in and one of them's dead and his buddy is got a through and through through both of his legs um and he's just sitting there and he's just looking at me and he just makes this eye contact with me it was like but it was just blank. It was like he didn't know what was going on anymore, the dope that, you know, the the drugs that he was on. and But he's sitting next to his dead friend. And I was like, I'm going to I'm going to try and do that. It was like that moment for me was like. Someone has to replace that guy that knows what he went through. And so that became my driving force after that. I was like. I was like, what if that could be me? What if I could step up and take that baton from from this hero? You know, and I never knew if I was going to be good enough or anything like that, but I knew I had to try. Wow. So most people would be in that type of situation and would not have that output. It would be the opposite reaction. Totally. That's probably what you would expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you would see that and go, well, I'm not sure. You know, start questioning, is this really what I want to do? Because I could be that guy as opposed to I want to be that guy Right. You know what I mean? It, it's a, Absolutely. It's a, yeah. And I think perhaps some of that is just because of, again, your upbringing and the things that you went through and realizing that, you know, you wanted to keep reaching higher and keep pushing yourself and demanding more. Right. Um, very similar to like what I was talking about in the beginning, you know, about something was embedded within you that made you feel not good enough and wanting to achieve over and over again. One hundred percent. And I can 100%. relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I can totally relate to that. So in that moment, um, you started working out and you ended up getting selected to um, uh, to SFA. You go off to SFAS in the queue. What was your MOS? What, what did you end up coming out? Uh, luckily, they didn't have a cook option. So I got. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. That like, would have sucked if you just showed up there and they go, so did you, we decided to change the rag. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you did you catch heat for being a cook before? Yeah, I'm curious about that. Non-stop. Oh. Guys, you wouldn't even believe non-stop. Like not every time, it. every time they, they found out, like I would keep that. Sh- I would I would not want to talk about it. The minute people start talking about their MOSs, I'd be like, wow, it's really nice outside. Look at the, look that, at the weather. I went on a ski trip the other yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> like anything I could to avoid, even after becoming a Green Bray, it's like anything I could to avoid talking about what we did before. Cause it's like, man, they're, you're surrounded by these guys that are just like, yeah, I was in range regiment. And then I went, you know, I was sniper and I'm like, please don't ask me what I did. Please don't ask me, you know, just, so I consistently, 
got talked down to or like just like what dude you're a cook that's hilarious and i was like no it's not but thank you <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it was non-stop it was not i mean i still get it yeah i got buddies in the police department that are, they're in swat and stuff they're like wait you're a cook like shut up go make me a sandwich yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly like you should have went a firefighter you got all the skills like built in that that mos is very, very underappreciated. No, and, it, and we're and joking. It really about shouldn't it, be. Yeah. And those guys, I, I understand where your first aren't mad. Those guys are shorthanded, typically. Yeah. 100%. I, yeah. I, I mean, it's. Especially the Ranger Bat ones. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Bat ones, because so many. Dude, the, the, I think it was like an E8. This is when I knew that Ranger Bat was hurting on Cooks, and this is why I got this contract. I had an E8 come up to me and say, please, dude, do not quit. And I was yeah. like, why are you talking to me? You're an E8. I'm a. <laughs> PV2, like I don't even know which way is up right now, and right. you're asking me not to quit. And I, I looked at him. I was like, I was like, I was like, Master, I'm like I promise you, I will not quit. Like I don't. I was so afraid, and this is some of the things I talk about. Is like, um, is like I'm so I'm more afraid of letting down someone I respect and looked up to than what they could do to me physically. Like, you know. Yeah. Totally. Um, so. So what was the MOS that you ended up coming out of in Q then? Uh, Bravo. Bravo. Okay. Yeah. What? Which uh, group? Uh, I was in tenth group. Okay. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember. Yeah. Um, when did you go uh, out there to tenth group? Uh, I think I got there. It was like 2015. I think it was like February 2015. Does the name Mike Pritz ring a bell? Uh, Sergeant Major Pritz. That does ring a bell. He was the regimental sergeant major, I think. Yes, that, time that rings a bell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's a co-host on this podcast. And, oh, what? And awesome. he's actually still out there in Colorado. He's a school teacher. Uh, he ended up being a um, he ended up being a Pat Tillman scholar. Oh, he got the scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh. and going through and getting his master's degree, he now teaches football and history and stuff like that there at a local high school. Somebody like the regimental sergeant major, after right? You probably yeah. remember that. Yeah, you, yeah. That probably was on a picture on that the was wall. on a promotion board somewhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you at least like saw his picture every time. You, yeah, every time you went to the chow hall, you probably saw his yeah. picture. Yeah. Uh, but I, you still want to be asked because it's like if if you if it just happens to be like a teammate or something, then it's going to strike such a chord that it's totally worth asking. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. After that time period, you end up spending how long uh, with tenth group? And, and uh, I, only, I did one, I did three, like three and three and a half years. Was it three years? Yeah. I was like three years with 10th group. Okay. Um, and then I got, I got super, super lucky that the deployment we went on cause 10th group was going to Africa Yeah. and the team was actually, when I got there, they were deployed to Africa and they, they took like, they had like one tick, but, mm. and it wasn't even close. Um, so I was like, man, and then they, Right as they got back, they're like, you guys are going to Afghanistan. And we're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> Afghanistan came off, and the team that we ripped out with, they're like, eh, it was all right. And so I was like, ah. So, you know, our hopes weren't very high. Yeah. But then Obama, believe it or not, he, he said, send it. And we were in gunfights, like, a lot. And, like, we were really getting after it. And um, What, what there, year was that? Can you say? Yeah, so that was 16. Okay. Was it 16 to probably like 16 to 17 that okay. we were over there? And it was, um, 
yeah, it was kinetic. Like there were, we were just going after ISIS and we were hitting them hard. And, um, I ended up having like a really not so great experience with our team sergeant, like our whole team kind of like, um, split down the middle and we just all like, we're like, listen, you guys are supporting him. We're not like, this is not good. And so my plan was as soon as I got back from deployment, I was going to try to go to ranger school and I was going to put in a warrant officer packet and my, and my, all my paperwork was done. And the day before it hit my inbox to sign, um, I was out just hanging out with my team and all of a sudden I hear screaming outside and my team sergeant is trying to fight my Charlie. And so I just got made senior Bravo. Um, so I was like, well, this is my responsibility to stop this. So I went up and I put my hand in, in between them and I was like, that's enough, dude. And he, he looks at me and he, he just gets this like, like, like scowl of a face and he goes, get away from me. And I was like, no, you're not going to fight Tino. Like not only is Tino not a, he's like not a fighter. Like he doesn't want to fight you, dude. And like, you're a team sergeant, bro. Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And so that just started, I went from like, like, you know, the man and, oh, you're going to get Bravo one and all these things are so great. And I'm going to send you to the, um, uh, CRIF when we get back and Ranger school. And that flipped it on its head from that day on. It was like me and him were, were just battling it out. He hated me. I wasn't a fan of him and we were in, there was no secret about any of it. So after that, I was like, you know what? I'm, I think I've had enough having my life under a contract. I was like, I was like, I'm not going to have to, like, if I find another boss like this, I want to be able to quit mm -hmm. and go find something else. Like, I don't want to be told too bad, so sad. Like you have another year and a half, you know? Yeah. So from that point on, like no joke that all my paperwork to resign, it was a six year contract. And that was like in my inbox. And then I hit the leap button the next day. Boop. Never mind. And thank God I did. It's been the best thing that's happened. Yeah. Wow. So after you got out, you went to the police route, SWAT, mm -hmm. the whole bit and everything. Didn't didn't make SWAT. So I, I got on a um citywide impact team. Okay. Yeah. So what, we what, were So what's the what's the difference between those two? So um we do have a full time SWAT team in Denver where I was at, and it's a phenomenal team. Um, but it's just really hard to get on because no one gets off. Mm. So those guys, like I have buddies over there, have been on for like 15 straight years. Yeah. Like, and they're not going anywhere until they retire. Wow. Because it's a, it's a great gig. Yeah. But the problem, yeah, like no new people are coming on um, until someone retires because, and they, you know, it's like, hey, that's great. You have special operations experience. Like we want you, but you're going to, you're going to wait your turn just like everybody else. And so it could wow. take you, it usually takes on average, like some guys like six to nine years um, just to get their spot to get on it, which was which was fine. Um, the the impact team was really really cool, uh, but the impact team was citywide. It was the first one citywide. So instead of being like confined to your area, mm -hmm. you get to go anywhere in the city that there's high crime. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to just be proactive, um, find the gangsters, find take their stolen guns off them so they don't kill somebody, um, and get the dope off them and get it off the streets. How crazy so that was, was that to go from where you were in California and that type of environment with, you know, drugs and everything else mm -hmm. prevalent and all around you to now being a cop 
thrown it back was, into that same environment, you know? Right. It was like, it was like going home. <laughs> was like, <laughs> I was like, that guy's got dope. That guy's got a gun. Like it, it just felt so natural. Cause I'm like, listen, I know what you guys are doing. Like I grew up with you guys, yeah. you know? And like, like that's to me, police departments, a lot of times they want to avoid hiring those kind of people on. Cause they want you to be like, they want to have plausible deniability if everything, anything ever goes wrong or you do anything wrong, right? Mm-hmm. They want to say, well, we hired Captain America. I mm-hmm. can't imagine why he beat that guy like that, you know? Right, right. And it, in reality, it's like the best cops are the ones that grew up with that stuff because it's like, I know exactly what these guys are doing. Yeah, you know I know how like. they're getting away with it. Yeah. So um, it felt really natural and it felt, and I was good at it. Like I really enjoyed, you know, finding, getting guns off the street. Guns were the best. And you know, I say that cause I got a, I started a YouTube channel to help guys get selected. And I, I say that on the channel, like, Oh, I like to take guys guns. And they're like, Oh wow. You, you don't care about the second amendment. It's like, no, sir. Listen, they're stolen guns held by felons who are openly, uh, active in gangs. So let's just pump the brakes. Like these are the guns that are killing innocent people. I don't think that's what the second amendment was written for. No, yeah. I don't. I don't yeah. think so either. Nah, I don't think our but, forefathers thought, you know, hey, let's let's write it for this purpose. Right, <laughs> right. Let's, <laughs> let's let's just get everyone that doesn't deserve to have guns and yeah. get them strapped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book comes out in February. Tell us a little bit about the book and what people can expect. I mean, it's a lot of what we just covered here, but yeah. you know, tell tell us a little bit more about it and where people are. Can can they go ahead and start pre ordering it? By the way. So no, not yet. Um, okay. It comes out February 23rd. We set the official um, release date. Um, I went with Scribe Media. So, you know, at first that was an expensive uh, thing and that was kind of scary to do, right? To make that that commitment financially, but it was like, they made it worth it, you know, with the edits and, and they really just honed it in. Um, but they can get the book uh, from seanbuckrogers.com. Um, is the website, you know, my Instagram, I'll keep everyone updated and that's, uh, at Sean Buck Rogers, but February 23rd is a release. We're not, we're not particularly pushing for pre-orders is, is what I've been advised. Hmm. Um, she said that it doesn't count towards your sales that's and true. there's just, there's just a lot that goes into, you know, pre-orders that's not as beneficial. So I think we're just going to wait for that 23rd release date and then, um, hopefully the hype is there. I just went in California. I got a buddy who's a filmmaker, and we just did a really, really awesome um, intro for, or it's like our book promotion video, and it's like it's like a like a movie. Like it's it's so cool. And that is awesome. I honestly, it's so good. I'm like, I don't I don't want to release it, and then like no one watches it, and I'm like, <laughs> like this thing is amazing. Or they get all excited, and then they're just like, what book? You know, <laughs> so <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. I think so. I think what you'll probably do is by people listening to this podcast and the other podcasts that you've been on, um, your story, like I said in the very beginning, is one of those things that many people can relate to. And it's it, either it's something that's very personal that they went through in their own life or they know someone else that this is going to resonate, I think, with a lot of people. And uh, I appreciate you coming on our show, man, and just sharing it. Oh, I appreciate you guys. This is, this is awesome. And it was it was like... And one of the things that I will never forget is the people that gave me a chance so early on. And you said yes to me before anything was rolling. You know, like now the YouTube within a few months was like gaining traction pretty quick. So people were like, hey, you want to do this? And hey, you want to do that? It's like, but you, 
you'll never forget the ones that like just saw the potential before things were moving. And so for that, I'll be internally grateful. So yeah, thank you for that. Appreciate it, Sean. I mean, I think that, so I'm really excited about your book coming out. Uh, oh, I appreciate I, it. Yeah. I, I really want people to go out there and follow that. Um, I saw that you also have, I guess, started a new podcast as well. Uh, is it the F and G podcast or? Yeah, so we started the FNG podcast and then the FNG Academy. Right. Um, and then the FNG Academy, yeah, it's just helping guys get selected. And the spinoff for that, and, and it's kind of like my my baby, is connecting UFC fighters with uh, special operations veterans. Because oh. to me, it's so yeah. that's, what, that's why I went out and I talked to Uri Faber and uh, Chris Holdsworth. And, um, you know, and to me, it was like, I value so much what they've been through and like the anxiety and the stress that they've learned to overcome that it's like veterans need that mm -hmm. we need to learn how to deal with our anxiety we need to learn how to overcome stress and it, it may not be getting in a ring but it could be going to a grocery store for some of these vets you know yeah. it's like people standing next to me in line and it, like if you don't understand spatial awareness as like as a human being someone with PTSD, like it, it, and it destroys me. And like, it makes me want to physically like push you away from me, you know? Yeah. So, so there, I just feel like there's so much value that UFC fighters have, um, with the things that they go through that I want to help bring to veterans so they can start using those coping mechanisms to live better, uh, lives and less stressed lives. Yeah, there's that's, that's great intuition because I think like, you got skin in the game, like real skin in the game when you're a fighter. And so there's, there's an understanding there inherently. And I Absolutely. think that a lot of conventional modalities for treating PTSD, like talk therapy and stuff like that, those all have their value, but there, there's an element of that's missing that if your providers only ever had like a, a clinical education or background or just a, a university education and background, like it, it doesn't always sync up. So that's, that's right. pretty clever, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And it, it, it's, it's feeling really good. It's like they're open to it because they don't, they, it's like, they just get treated like a win or a loss. And that's like disrespectful to what they put in. Mm. And so you got these fighters. It's just like, well, did you, are you a champion? It's like, yeah. dude, are you get you're getting into it. That's what I told him. I was like, listen, in combat, you're walking down in Valley and maybe things don't pop off and then bullets start flying. So you're reacting. But you know the exact date, time, to the minute that you're going to be in a ring with someone trying to knock your head off. That overcoming of anxiety is absolutely insane. Oh, and people are watching. Everybody's watching. Yeah, I'm exactly. so glad nobody watched me while I was working in Afghanistan. Like, <laughs> no audience. But it's yeah. great. You know, you don't have to worry if you look stupid or... Yeah, yeah. You, know, you make guys, a mistake. And there, and that's one thing about the book is there's so many times I made so many mistakes and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be open about them now. Cause I like we're, we're human. And the last thing I need is to, to use a platform to tell you about how tough I am or how cool I am or, well, I'm a big bad, but no, no, yeah. I made so many, I made so many mistakes and right. Like, like you said, well, like, thank God that, you know, no one was watching. At least I could choose when you get to know those mistakes. Yours is on television like everyone's watching this or, or whatever and you're so i think there's just so much value that we're going to bring uh to the veteran community with the help of of fighters and and hopefully they continue to be open to it um like uriah was and, and chris and uh cody uh so 
Oh. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. That's really cool. And I know that there um, is other organ. There are other organizations that are out there that are pulling in together, you know, professionals and football players and stuff like that together with veterans. Because there are parallels there where people are in such a high, they're in demand and they're loving life, everything is good. And then all of a sudden the next day something happens and the world is turned upside down. And right. having to deal with those roller coaster emotions of that automatic change, whether it's from an injury as a veteran, post traumatic stress, losing your best friend, whatever that case may be. In, in the NFL, you know, perhaps it's something like you're having a contract, you're doing well, you get injured. Next thing you know, your career is over. And finding those commonalities is better for us all the way around, I think, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to we have to look out for each other because people, the, the common public, they don't get what it's like to have a panic attack driving to work because yeah. of traffic. Yeah. They don't get what it's like to have a, a mini panic attack standing in line at a grocery store. Yep. They don't understand what it's like to sit in church and visualize all the active shooters that are going to happen and how you're going to respond to it and how you're going to get your family or a restaurant and having to have your back against the wall. And it's like these things, they get talked about, but it's like, we can't, it's not this like cliche thing. Like these are the the things that we're dealing with in our lives. And like, we have to let each other know, just like we were talking about before. Yes, you are broken, but it's okay. And that's the part I think that we fail to give, like you told me, it's like, you gave yourself a break. Like you gave yourself, you know, um, permission per, there it was, you gave yourself permission. And it's like, we have to give each other that permission sometimes, you know? And, um, I was honestly affected pretty heavily by the loss of, uh, that I didn't know him personally. Uh, he was seventh group that, uh, E8 that took his life. Oh, you're talking about recently. Yeah. yeah. And he, he's like, he was just, he had so much to offer this world that it's like yeah. to look at all his deployments and deployment and deployment and like all his experience and group and like his guys like loved him. Yes. And then to see someone at that high caliber take his own life was like, damn, we got to do something. We have to, we have to seek each other out. Yeah. Happens a lot. I mean, we have some great guys out there, especially uh, Rory Hammer. We just talked about recently in one of our episodes, who was a former Marine that uh, took his own life as well. And he was one of those that was a veterans uh, advocate. He was talking uh, openly about post-traumatic stress and the struggles and everything else that he had and trying to help fellow veterans and saving their lives. And then the same thing, you know, he, he hits that bottom, the beast comes and, Mm You know, yeah, we've we've got to do more um, than just 22 push-ups a day. We've got to figure out ways to try to help every one of us, you know, keep moving forward. And I think, again, it's stories like yours that even come back from childhood, because I think there's been a study and some research that they're doing, by the way, that uh, I know one gentleman's done that tries to see if there's something within an individual's past history life that may affect that individual in a combat situation that the trigger point might have PTS might happen faster or um, it, it may come upon this person, whereas it wouldn't affect others because there's something hidden. That, oh yeah. That causes that to be another trigger point. Um, and absolutely it, it exasperates it, you know, or something. Of absolutely. That yeah. So and that, that's, that happened to me for sure. Like war exasperated uh, my PTSD and like, and then the police department did with the riots and things like that. And it's like, can't imagine. Yeah. In the the department, and I talked to a psych about it, and she was like, the reason that the department, like you feel like that affects you the most, she's like, it's kind of similar to Vietnam to where 
you're getting it from both sides. And that's the key. That's the key that really starts to, to make the wheels fall off. It's like it's one thing to have an enemy and fight the enemy or to have a, a mission and fight the mission. But then once the department is saying, whoa, whoa, how'd you do that and how'd you do this? And then you're getting it from both sides. It's like, yeah, whoa, like it, it'll throw you through a loop. Yeah. And it's like, I'm out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't do this. Like I know myself enough to know that I am in a I'm in a bad way right now because if you guys like luckily, you know, I, I felt really good about everything I did and everything went worked out well. But, you know, it, it could flip the switch like that. And oh. now all of a sudden, if if you're going to try to put me in court over something that you told me to do and, and you supported two seconds ago because the media doesn't like it. Oh, hell no. Like, I'm out of that. I'm not playing that game. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, definitely, so, definitely it's, been crazy. Well, it's a very tenuous position to be in i mean that's that's yeah. precarious I don't, I, I don't know how you can do it right now as a police officer because it could seem like the world's against you it's not but it certainly can turn that way in an instant so absolutely those guys deserve a lot of credit right now and that's one thing that i was doing a, a, a you know paper on my master in my master's program about it is like uh cops have ptsd Oh, heck yeah. And then yeah, having like to deal lot. with, they drive, the, the difference is, and we've talked about this on past episodes, they drive by those scenes of those crimes where it affected them or where somebody all the time, not 3,000 miles away, not 4,000 right. miles away, every day when they go every take day. their kid for ice cream or when they take him to school or whatever, they may be driving by. Yeah, to very different. Yeah. And then, but instead of saying, hey, our guys have PTSD, our guys are suffering and we need to help them. We just act like they're Captain Americas because we're afraid of the public knowing what's really going on inside their minds and the things that they deal with. But then we're also afraid, we're afraid of liability and we're afraid of, you know, how it's going to look. That's the point. And that's sort of what we're seeing is we're not taking care of these guys mentally, physically. I mean, how many, how much overtime were you getting on the force? You know, like how many extra shifts are your guys doing? All, and right. it's all across the country because you're in such high, high demand. And it's just like a car. If you run it till it's ragged and you run past your oil change and you run past your scheduled maintenance and then your car breaks down or doesn't operate the way it's supposed to, well, it's not the car's fault, you know, if you didn't take it off the road and do your proper maintenance. And I think that that's a, that's a great way of putting that's it. That's a great you know? point. That's like, a great point. Yeah. And, and that's what's happening every day. We could, we could do a whole another episode on this. Whole another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Right. And, that, and that's why I think your, your podcast is, is so successful. And that's why I think Joe Rogan is so successful is because it's just an open mind and we're all we're all just dying to hear somebody have an open mind like we don't have to agree we're not going to agree we're already bat battling uh an algorithm every time we turn our phones on and then that's just pumping us full of the information that we want to hear because it knows everything that we we look at and so it's just re replicating that so it's just getting harder and harder and harder to have those middle ground conversations but mm -hmm. When people like you guys are, and you and Joe Rogan, all these people that are, are willing to, to talk and willing to listen, I mean, our society is just going to be, it's it's dying for it. It needs it so bad. I'm and they want that, it. They just don't know. I'm honored that you put Mentors for Military up with Joe Rogan. I'm looking for that Spotify contract. If you're out there, Spotify. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm good. Hey, listen. Yeah. Come on. Call me, please. Yeah. Bring it on. <laughs> they call me a sellout all you want. I, I will happily do so. Uh, Sean, what? thank you so much again, man, for coming on, brother. I really appreciate it. I wish you much success. And thank I'd love so. to have you back on, like I said, after Absolutely. the book and some of the success, because I think there's so much more that we can still dive into. 
Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Well, I, I truly enjoyed talking to you guys. Appreciate it, I, man. I Likewise. forgot that this all was on. I'm just having a good conversation with God. Some, That's exactly some good what people, it's supposed so. to be. <laughs> yeah. Same, man. <laughs>